in our Bibles tonight to Psalms chapter number 16, Psalms chapter 16. I, I had an epiphany while I was sitting there, and um, not not a real one, amen, but, <laughs> and I thought, you know, ladies, that's really, that's what you need to start doing. Next time that you want to go to Walmart, and your husband says, why are you going down there to Walmart, spend my money for you, just tell him I'm not going to spend anything. I might find some things to buy while I'm there, but that's not why I'm going I'm going to find people to, to give tracts to. Amen. It's not shopping. It's soul winning. Amen. And uh, now as I was thinking about it, I regretfully, fellas, I'm sorry, I don't think that's going to work with the deer stand. Amen. Or the trout stream. And not unless you can. I mean, the Bible does say we're to preach the gospel to every creature. Amen. And I would assume that would mean a 10 point buck as well. So maybe you can get away with it. But your mileage may vary. I don't know. Psalms chapter number 16 tonight. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. We'll read the entirety of this psalm, just 11 verses tonight, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Psalms chapter 16, verse number 1 says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is my is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. I pray that as we study your word this evening that you would unveil the truth of it to us, Lord. We don't just want to uh, have some thoughts derived out of it. We want to get the message of it, Lord. We want to know what your word teaches, and may it be applied to our hearts and minds and life as we are obedient unto you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for it, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Psalms chapter number 16 is uh, like we preached on Sunday night in the 102nd Psalm. It, too, is a messianic psalm. There is one verse in particular that has strong prophetic overtones, and it is verse number 9 when it says, Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The New Testament directly links this verse with the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, as we read through the entirety of it, it could be understood as being a conversation between the Savior and the Father. But tonight I don't want to focus on it only from a pr- prophetic perspective, but rather I want us to look at it in a practical way. The first phrase that's given to us in this psalm, in verse number one, is this short plea, preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God. I want to preach to you tonight on being preserved by the Lord. Let me say that I believe uh, that uh, God preserves His people. I don't believe that means that we're never going to backslide. I don't believe it means we're never going to be disobedient to the Lord. But I do believe this, that once the Lord saves a man, He keeps a man. Amen? 
I believe that God knew who and what we were when He saved us. He's not surprised by the things that we do. He may be grieved by some of the choices that we make, but He is not surprised by Him in any way. But the preservation that's being spoken of in this text, I don't think is relating necessarily to the status of the believer as being justified with God. Rather, I think what the psalmist is praying is that God would maintain some things in his life. The word preserve has this definition. It can mean to keep or save from injury or destruction or to defend from evil. It can also mean to uphold or to sustain. It can mean to save from decay or to keep in a sound state, to keep or defend from corruption. I think one of the best definitions I ever heard for preservation, an old country preacher was talking about the preservation of the Word of God. Let me say, I believe God has preserved His Word. I believe He has preserved it perfectly and inerrantly. Uh, And I believe it's for us English-speaking people right here in this King James Bible. I believe we have the Word of God. I don't believe we have some iteration of it. I believe we have the Word of God tonight. And this preacher, in talking about preservation, he began to talk about canning. And he said, uh, my first introduction to preservation was in the matter of canning. He said, if you can some green beans and if you open them up eight months later and they ain't green beans, something went wrong. Amen. They ought to have the same flavor. They ought to have the same look. They ought to have the same everything about them. They ought to remain sound. And let me just say this. Any belief in the preservation of the Word of God that degrades the end product is not a real belief in the preservation of the Word of God. Uh, either God preserved His Word or He didn't preserve His Word. Either what we have here in our hand is the very Word of God. We can trust it. We can believe it. We can obey it. It's not just the Word. It's the words of God. Or God didn't preserve His Word. Well, of course, God has promised to preserve His Word for us. And I believe God has done that very thing. And by the way, how foolish would God have been to have inspired His Word without promising to preserve it? How nonsensical is it to believe that He preserved it when He didn't inspire it? These two doctrines can only exist with the other one. It's got to be there. If we're going to believe He inspired it, He would have been foolish not to preserve it. And if we're going to believe He preserved it, there ain't nothing worth preserving if He didn't inspire it in the first place. I believe we have the inspired and preserved and inerrant Word of God tonight. So preservation has the idea of maintaining in a static or stable condition. And in that definition, the psalmist cries out to God and asks God to preserve him. Now, what does he mean? What is he asking God to preserve in his life? I don't think he's merely asking God to keep him alive. I think he's praying that God would guard some things in his life and maintain some things in his life. Let me just say this before we get into the message. We're living in a world today that's going to consistently try to change what the believer is. It'll try to change who a Christian is. It'll try to reshape it and redefine it and recast it and reimagine it in every way possible. But I believe there are some things that we need to have preserved in our life. Some things that we need to cling to and to hold to. What are some of these things the psalmist is asking for? Well, the first is in verse number one. He says, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. David is asking God to preserve his hope or his confidence in the world. Listen, we're living in days where if you're not careful, you'll cast away your confidence, which hath a great recompense of reward. You'll let the destruction and the evil and the wickedness of the world beat you down so much that you'll start to believe, man, there's no hope, there's no help. You'll start getting poor in the mouth about God and His promises. You'll walk around with your head hung low. Listen, as children of God, I understand. I can read my Bible like you can. I understand things ain't getting better. They're getting worse. But listen, praise God, the promises of God are still 
still true. They're yea and amen. It don't matter what this world does. We can still trust God. But if we're not careful, we'll lose that hope in our life. And we'll begin to grow discouraged and disheartened. He's praying that God would preserve his hope. Verse number two says something interesting. Oh, my soul, the psalmist says, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Now, undoubtedly, there are certain messianic truths that are contained here in the uh, ministry of the Lord Jesus. And his purpose was not merely to die on the cross for the pleasure of God or to satiate his wrath, although certainly that was a part of it. But rather, the goodness of the Lord Jesus was extended to those that would believe on him and call upon his name. But as David writes this, here's what he's saying. Lord, I can't be as good to you as you deserve, but I can be good to those that you love. My goodness extendeth not to thee. I, I, I really can't bless you, Lord, the way that I wish that I could bless you, but I can find those that you love and I can be good to them. I'd say it this way. He's asking God to preserve his hope, but not only that, to preserve his heart. He doesn't want to become a cynic. He doesn't want to grow thick skin and get to the place where he views everybody as a con and as an angle. He wants to keep a tender heart towards those that God loves and those that love the Lord. We could say if the first statement regards our confidence, our hope, then the second regards our compassion and our heart. He's saying this, I don't want to become cynical in this world. Let me tell you something, child of God, it's easy to be a cynic. And it's addictive to be a cynic. Being a cynic gives you the idea that somehow you have a uh, smarter angle on everything around you in life than everyone else. And oftentimes, really all it is is a means of masking us from ever having any vulnerability in our uh, relations with anyone else, in our interactions with them. It's easy to be a cynic. It's hard to be compassionate. It's hard to keep our heart tender and allow the Lord to use it in the lives of other people. And if we're not careful, man, we'll just become a cynic like anyone else walking through the world and we'll view the world as constantly and consistently out to get us. You say, but preacher, sometimes they are out to get us. Yeah, I understand that. But don't you believe that God reigns supreme over it all and He can keep His people and He can help His people and He can use His people in the lives of others. He's asking God to preserve His heart. Verse number four, he says this, their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Now, this is just a statement of observation. People that are pagans, that are idolaters, that worship false gods, they're sorrowful people. But then we have a statement of determination. He says, their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. I'd say it this way. He's asking God to preserve his holiness. He's looking around at a world that is defined by rank paganism and heathenism. And he's saying, I sure enough don't want to grow comfortable with that. I don't want to live the way they live. I don't want to do what they do. I don't want to just go along to get along. I want to keep being salt and keep being light and keep being different from the world around us. He's asking God to preserve his consecration. Let me tell you, in the days that we're living in, there is constant pressure. I was talking to my wife before we came to church tonight. I don't know if you know this. This is just a, a, a fact of the science trademark, the science. We're hearing a lot about the science today. Here's a statement of the science. I don't know if you're aware of this, but did you know that gravity, the force of gravity, is at all times 14 pounds per square inch? You don't feel it because you just move in it. Amen. Although I will say the older we get, gravity seems to get a little heavier. Amen. But uh, at all times, just the gravitational pull of, uh, of our world puts 14 pounds per square inch 
of pressure on us. Always pressing in. Always weighing down. You know, it reminds me of the wickedness of the world that we live in. It's always pressing in. It's always weighing down. It's always trying to coerce us and manipulate us and cause us to compromise and do wrong and do wicked and do evil. And if we're not careful, listen, we don't, we don't have to... Just being passive is enough to compromise. Just not maintaining a commitment to the Lord, it won't be long and you'll be living in an ungodly manner. Psalmist says, man, I'm praying, Lord, that you'd help me. I'm committed to live righteously, but I'm praying that you would help me to do that. And then look at verse number five. The psalmist says, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my law. In other words, he's saying, Lord, as long as I have you, I have everything that I need. I'd say it this way. He's asking God to preserve his happiness or his contentment. He wants to keep a right perspective that as long as he's got the Lord, he has everything that he needs. And he does not want to grow so dissatisfied with his lot in life that he begins to pursue after other things to satisfy him. He says, thou maintainest my lot. Lord, you're the one that keeps me content. You're the one that keeps me satisfied. You're the one that keeps me happy and following you. I'd say this, we live in a world that if we're not careful, we will let rob us of our contentment. And if the devil can take our contentment, he's taking a big thing. Godliness with contentment, the Bible says, is great gain. To be satisfied with Jesus is a powerful thing. And if we're not careful, we'll look at what others have and we'll grow dissatisfied with what we have. And there's a great many Christians that are hobbled in their spiritual development because they spend all their time looking around wishing they had what somebody else has instead of rejoicing what they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying for God to preserve his happiness. But then in verse 6, he says this. It's a very familiar, famous verse. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. When he speaks of lines, he's speaking of family lineage. And he's talking about how that God has blessed him with people in his family and people in his history and his past that have taught him the truth and led him to this pleasant place of knowing God and walking with God. And that's why he reiterates it. He says, I have a goodly heritage. In other words, he's wanting God to preserve his heritage. Now, when we think of preserving a heritage, we think of it in terms of having cultural recognition days, you know, uh, here in Appalachia, somebody blows up an annual and some, uh, an anvil and someone, not an annual, amen, but an anvil. Someone weaves a basket out of, out of straw, something like that. But the heritage that he's talking about, he's essentially saying this, I've been entrusted with a great thing and I don't want to take it lightly. And I don't want to lose what's been given unto me. Instead, I want that to be preserved so that I can then give it to the next generation. We could say it this way to preserve his heritage and his calling. Uh, let me tell you, the devil's after our kids and our grandkids. He's, he's after young people. If he can cut young people off from that goodly heritage, from that pleasant line in their life, he's done about half the work that's needed to destroy it. He's already got the chains on him. He just has to keep them locked down. And the psalmist recognizes how precarious. I mean, you can think of it in the illustration of a sower with seed. You understand that a sower holds in his hands the past and the future. He's got the seeds from the previous crop. He's got the seeds for the next crop. He holds the, the whole thing in his hand. And if one sower doesn't sow, that entire harvest is lost. You know, the same thing's true about our testimony 
for Lord Jesus Christ. We hold in our hands something that somebody long before us planted. We hold in our hands something that has the potential to keep being planted for generation after generation. And if we will not take a stand for Christ, that's all that's necessary for the testimony and witness of our life to be null and void and to be of none effect. In other words, we could maybe summarize all this by saying the psalmist is asking for God to preserve his testimony as a believer. He's asking God to preserve him as a Christian, as a believer, as a follower of God and us in this New Testament day of grace, a follower of Jesus Christ. He's asking God to preserve and not let the world corrupt or compromise his testimony. He goes on to describe some things that God uses in that endeavor. So how can the believer be preserved from the world's wickedness? Now, let me say God's uh, will for our life is not that we hide ourselves away, cloister ourselves away, pull the blanket over our head and pretend there's not a world dying and going to hell out there. That wasn't what the Lord Jesus did. That's not what we're called to do. Uh, the only time in the history of Israel that you have a prophet that decides he's going to hide from his calling in a cave, God comes pulling outside the mouth of the cave to tell him to get out and get back to work. God's will for our life is not that we be isolationists. We are to be separatists in our uh, beliefs and in our behavior, but we are not to be isolationists in our interactions with the world. So if we've got to interact with this world, how can we be preserved from the wickedness? And by the way, that's what the Lord Jesus prayed for His disciples. He prayed to His Father and He said, Lord, I don't pray that You'd take them out of this world, but I do pray that You'd keep them from this world. That's preservation. Keep them from the world. Don't allow the world to change who they are. How can that be accomplished in our life? I notice three things tonight and then I'll be done. Look at verse number seven with me. The psalmist says, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. I'd say number one tonight, our life can be preserved from the influence of the world through counsel from the Lord. We need the wisdom of God. We need the mind of God. We need the instruction of God. Our life must be shaped not by this world's pressures or this world's philosophies, but rather by eternal values and eternal truths. Now, what does that look like? Well, notice the first thing he says. He says, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. Notice that he's speaking in the past tense. He's speaking of counsel that is already in existence. Now, you can believe what you want about this, but I believe he was talking about counsel from the Scriptures. I believe he was saying God's already spoken and given His Word. Now, when David would have pinned this down, the Bible wouldn't have been as thick as it is before you and I today. But he certainly had his portion of Scripture. He would have had the Pentateuch. He would have had the books of Moses. He would have probably had some of the other records, historical things like the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. He had a canon of Scripture. And he looks at that Bible. He looks at that canon of Scripture. And he says, you know, there's a lot of things that God has already spoken on. And if I want my life to be in line with the Word of God, I've got to get my life in line with the Word of God. Somehow we just expect God to do things for us that not only has God given us the capability to do, but He's given us the responsibility to do. There are things that we're praying and saying, God, do this for me. And God, I think, is looking at us saying, I'll help you do it, but you've got to be willing to. And there's a great many things in our life that we say, well, I want my life to be biblical. I want it to be consecrated. I want my life to be that which pleases God. But we have things in our life that we know are out of line with the truth of Scripture. We can pray all we want, but until we're willing to get serious enough to get our life in line with the Word of God, it all falls on deaf ears. God's not interested in helping us play the hypocrite and pretend as though we're trying when we're not trying 
we need to seek counsel from the Lord. First, counsel from the Scriptures. There's a lot you don't have to pray about. God's already spoken about it. There's a lot that you don't have to debate about. God's already spoken about it. There's a great many things that this world rejects and then tries to move into the realm of that which is relative or that which is somehow unclear or obscure. I understand that as we navigate this world, there may be places where we have to discern through principles in Scripture what we need to do. You may have heard me say this before, but I'll say it again tonight. The Bible speaks to every matter in life, either in particular or in principle. Uh, you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, for instance, the Bible speaks about alcohol in particular. Uh, it says that we're not to look at the cup when the wine moveth about in it. We're, we're not to uh, uh, be partakers of a strong drink. Uh, the Bible says we're not to look at it. We're not to touch it. It's not to have any part in our life. I know people want to go to Ephesians and say, well, the Bible just says to be not drunk. Yeah, go ahead and tear out the rest of your Old Testament then too. That also says, woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Uh, it says that we're not to look on it. We're not to touch it. We're not to flirt with it. It's not to be a part of our life. I could have all the conversations with you about the usage of the word wine in Scripture. And I think we all understand what strong drink is. Strong drink is alcohol. The Bible deals with it particularly. But now people would say, well, preacher, what about narcotics? Uh, what about recreational use of drugs? And by the way, I'm not a Christian scientist. Uh, I'm a Christian, but I ain't a scientist. Amen. And I'm certainly not a Christian scientist. I don't believe that there's any prohibition on using medicine, but the recreational use of drugs would fall in principle under the same category as alcohol would. So you see, God's dealt with some things in particular, but then He's dealt with everything either in particular or in principle. But you and I understand there may be areas of life where we need help discerning what's the mind, what's the will of God on these things. And I don't believe God begrudges us that. In fact, notice what He says in verse number 7. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. There's some things that the Word of God's already spoken on. But then he says this, My rains also instruct me in the night season. Now, the rains are the uh, part of the uh, apparatus on a horse uh, whereby a person exerts their will over. Right? You have reins, you pull on those reins, you steer those reins. Uh, in in uh, symbolic language, uh, reins in the Word of God tend to speak to a person's will within them. Uh, their consciousness, their will, their mind, their heart. Uh, for instance, whenever Job talks about seeing the Lord, he says, though my reins be consumed within me. He's talking about his natural, uh, his natural lamp of light, so to speak, or lamp of life. So when it says reins, what's it talking about? Very likely David was speaking about the human conscience. He was saying, in the night seasons, my conscience deals with me. My conscience directs me. My conscience guides me. Now you may say, well, preacher, does that mean we're to live our life according to conscience? No, because the conscience can be corrupted. The conscience can be seared. The conscience can be manipulated. You see, we in this dispensation of grace have something better than conscience. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, if you study the Bible, it makes abundantly clear that for Gentiles in the Old Testament, where they did not have the commandments of God, they had conscience that served as a law unto them. The book of Romans says, when those that have not the law do those things contained in the law, they bear witness that those things are a law unto themselves. Their conscience also bearing them witness. But did you know in the New Testament, uh, just as in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is uh, is now the arbiter for the Jew of truth from the Old Testament. Likewise, the Spirit of God is the arbiter of truth in the life of the Gentile as well. It has displaced the role of conscience. It doesn't mean you don't have a conscience. It means you've got something better than conscience. 
you have the Holy Spirit. I would say this, we see counsel from the Scriptures, and then we see counsel from the Spirit of God. In other words, in our life as we study the Word of God, there is clear teaching, and uh, there are things we don't need to pray about, we don't need to debate about, we just need to obey it. But then in certain areas of our life, we may be left with questions, things that we wonder about. But we can trust that the Spirit of God will guide us. In fact, that's what John chapter 16 says His job is to do, is to guide us into all truth. In other words, when in my life I'm disobedient, the Spirit of God will deal with me about that matter. And I'm to be obedient to His leading, to His guiding, to His conviction, and to His dealing in my life. So uh, we do this by counsel from the Scriptures, counsel from the Spirit. But then look at verse number 8. It says this, I've set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. In setting the Lord always before Him, what He's saying is He is always beholding the Lord. He's always looking at the Lord. Now, why would a person be doing that? They're looking at the Lord because they're trying to discern what the Lord expects out of them. I would say it this way. There's counsel from Scriptures. There's counsel from the Spirit of God. But then there's counsel from seeking the Lord in prayer. Uh, when there's things we don't know what to do, what do we do? We pray about it. We pray and we seek His face. We ask Him to disclose to us His will about whatever the matter is. And the psalmist goes on to say, because He is at my right hand. The right hand is the hand of function and of power and of agency. And he's saying, the Lord's at my right hand. He's the one governing my life. He's the one with the power in my life. And because of that, he says, I shall not be moved. The picture is of a man that is seeking the Lord's face, seeking the Lord's wisdom. And then once he has ascertained it, he does what the Lord expects out of him, what God is asking out of his life. In other words, he takes the driver's will and puts it in God's hand and allows him to have the governance and jurisdiction over his life. So we can be preserved from this world, its philosophies and its lies and deceptions through counsel from the Lord. Uh, there's a great many, listen, a lot of us were deteriorating because we spend more time listening to the world than we do listening to the Word of God. And pretty soon, man, that's going to rot away at you. You've got to get away from that and get in the truth of God's Word. So through counsel from the Lord. Look at verse number 9. He says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. This is a statement of great confidence in the Lord. And that's the second thing that gives us preservation from this world. We've got to keep faith with the Lord and in the Lord. We've got to keep trusting Him. Notice first off the praise of a confident heart here. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. I like that phrase, my glory Rejoice. What is he talking about when he talks about glory? The word glory literally means exultation. It means to be excited. Uh, we would uh, use the term today. Talk, old timers used to talk about getting in the glory. They were talking about praising God, getting excited about the things of God. And the psalmist says, my glory rejoices. In other words, my excitement's excited. My praise is praising. My rejoicing is rejoicing. My glory is glorifying. What he's saying is this, that my faith, my confidence, my zeal, is dependent not on my conditions around me, but rather upon the spiritual realities that I know to be true. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. There's going to be times you're going to have to praise God irrespective of the circumstances you find yourself in. Uh, there, If your praise is always conditional upon your environment, there's going to be plenty of times you're going to find to not praise Him. And you know what you're doing then? You're allowing the world you live in to change you. Does the world you live in get to decide when you have joy? 
Does it get to decide when you praise God? Uh, does the person you work for get to decide when you praise God? Uh, does the people down at the bank get to decide when you praise God? Uh, does those crazy people driving up and down the road and the other cars around you, do they get to decide when you praise God? I'd say this, if you're allowing those circumstances to dictate that, then you're being changed by the world around you. In other words, you're not being guided and governed by that which is above you, but rather by that which is around you. We see the praise of a confident heart. Then he says this, My flesh also shall rest in hope. Now he goes on to explain this in verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. This, of course, is a prophecy about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, you know that in the New Testament we are taught clearly that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus serves as the pattern for the resurrection of the believer. Uh, that we are raised from the dead in like manner to the way that He was raised from the dead. Paul said it this way, our vile body will be made like unto His glorious body. So what is the hope that David is writing about. He's writing about the hope that one of these days uh, he will leave this world and be given a new body, an incorruptible body, a body that is not susceptible to the pressures and influence of this world around. Now it says that his flesh rests. In other words, it means to cease from activity. Now I wish I could tell you that my flesh rests. Uh, but when my flesh rests, it don't look like laying down and going to sleep. It looks more like a wrestling match in a sleeper hole. Amen. What he's saying is, I deliberately tell my flesh to hush because I have hope that one of these days my flesh will be eradicated, will be dealt with, and I will then be given a new body over which my flesh has no reign and has no authority. We see the peace of a confident heart. David's flesh bothered him just like your flesh bothers you. And I'm not talking about weariness or infirmity, although certainly that's a component of it. But I'm talking about the fact that the flesh desires consistently to live contrary to God and His Word and His will and His ways. And David says, what I've done is I've told my flesh just to settle down and hush because it does not get to decide how I live. One of these days it's going to be done away with. And so I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to tether my eternity to that which is temporal. I'll just tell my flesh to hush until the time comes that it all changes. Where does peace come from in our life? You know, I've often thought the Bible tells us one of these days we'll enter into our rest. And, you know, many of us have never known what true rest is like. The example and pattern for this is the Lord Himself when He created heaven and earth. Uh, the Bible says in six days created all things, and then on the seventh day, the Bible says He rested. Now, He didn't rest because He was tired. He rested because he was finished. It was a cessation of labor in light of a finished work. We think of rest as just the collapse of a fatigued body. But rest is to be free from all the encroaching influences that would press upon us an unnatural condition. And when you got born again, you got a new nature. Now all of a sudden, your flesh is not at rest anymore. Before you got born again, your flesh was in perfect league with what this world was asking of it and commanding of it. But when you got saved, you got a new man within you, and he is constantly bothered, annoyed, and persecuted by the influence of the world around us. We've not known rest ever since that day. One of these days, we'll know rest. That flesh will be changed. Our vile body made like unto his glorious body. But David says, in the time being, what I'm doing is telling my flesh it doesn't get to dictate how I live because it's not the eternal part of me anyway. It's going to be changed one day 
and be transformed. We see the peace of a confident heart. And that's borne out in the promise to a confident heart. He says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, of course, this is speaking prophetically of the Lord Jesus. But it's a reminder to us that the same way that the Lord Jesus was given a glorified body, free from all those pressures, so likewise will we. That's the promise given to us, that we don't live in this condition forever. As a born-again believer, we're promised that we're not going to be like this eternally. We're going to be given a new body. So we see that it's through confidence in the Lord. Don't cast away your confidence. It has a great recompense of reward. But then notice verse 11, and I'm done tonight. It says this, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now, this, of course, likewise is a messianic statement. When it talks about being at thy right hand, that's Jesus' spot. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. When he says, thou wilt show me the path of life, he's speaking to God as the one that would bring his soul out from hell, would not suffer him to see corruption, but instead would raise him from the dead with life everlasting to give to all men that would come unto him. When he says, in thy presence is fullness of joy, he's talking about the contentment and the completeness that he would experience as a resurrected Savior. You remember he made the statement when he was praying to his father in John 17. He said, Lord, glorify me with the glory that we had before the world began. What he's saying is when I get back in that place that I was at, I'm going to have fullness of joy. But in what the psalmist is saying about his life, let's lay those two things like a transparency sheet on top of each other. And think about them. Because I think what we have here is an indication that that we can be preserved through communion with the Lord. In other words, the more time we spend with God, the less like this world will be. You remember they said that about James and John and and Peter uh, in the New Testament, that when they heard them, they took knowledge when they saw their boldness that these men had been with Christ. It changed them from the world around them because they had spent time with the Lord. What do we see in this verse? Well, number one, we see the path of the Savior. Thou wilt show me the path of life. And he walked that path first. What is that path? That path is through mortification of self, putting self to death, and raising in newness of life in communion with God. That same resurrection power lives within every single believer. I'm not talking about the ability to conjure something or manipulate something. But what I'm saying is when you got born again, that old part of you, though it still lives and resides within you, it was reckoned as dead, as null and void, as having no more authority or jurisdiction in your life. We are to reckon it dead with Christ on the cross. And the life which we live now, we're to live not through our own agency, but rather through the agency of the Son of God, through Him living through us. In other words, the way that we keep ourselves from the world and looking more like the Lord Jesus is to not live our lives in and of ourselves, but rather to allow Him to live through us. That's the path of life. He walked that path first, and now we follow Him through that path in resurrection life. We see the path of the Savior. We see the presence that satisfies. You know, I told you that one of the things the world wants to do is rob us of our contentment, of our happiness. Well, listen to what the psalmist says. He says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. No believer will ever be happier than they will be spending time with the Lord. I I seem to have to learn this lesson consistently. (laughs) There's a lot of lessons I have to learn consistently. There'll be times as you live in this world that you'll let the world dictate your disposition. 
the things that happen in life, the things that occur, it will decide whether you have joy in your life. And what a tragedy that is. But you know that the Lord Jesus taught us something very interesting. He said to his disciples before he went to the cross, he said that my joy shall, or your joy, he said, shall no man take. He told his disciples that they got to decide whether they had joy in their life. No one else got to decide that for them. He said, if you walk with me, if you if you fellowship with me, if you spend time with me, then your joy will be full, he said, and your joy shall no man take. Now, I've met a lot of joyless Christians in my life. Maybe the majority. <laughs> what a sad testimony that is. Did you know that not a single one of them ever had their joy stolen from them? Not a one. Not a one ever had the devil come running up and wrestle their joy out of their hands. Not a one of them. Because your joy shall no man take. Every one of them signed it over. Every one of them made a conscious decision to focus on the things of this world, to focus on defeat instead of victory, and they gave up their joy. Now, how do we guard ourselves from that? Well, very simply, we live in the realm where victory reigns. We spend time with God. As we spend time with God, we are ever reminded that there is much to be joyful over. When we drift from that consistent fellowship of prayer, of reading our Bible, of, of living consciously in His presence, in our decision making, in our going about our day, it won't be long we'll find ourselves discouraged. But the more that we live in His presence, the more we'll find our joy to be resilient. Then notice what he says at the end. He says, at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Now, this is talking about the risen Lord, right? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And you might say, well, preacher, boy, I, you know, I'd love to have those same kinds of pleasures. I'd just love to enjoy life more. I'd love to, I'd love to live in victory. I'd love to live with, with exuberance and excitement in my heart and life. If I could just get to that place where Jesus is, then I would have all those things. Do you know that the book of Ephesians says you're already there? The book of Ephesians says we are seated together with Him in heavenly places positionally, meaning the way God views us, and providentially or provisionally, in other words, what is made available to us, we are treated exactly as though we are seated in that very place. The book of Ephesians is occupied with the entering of the believer into those things. But I would say this, in our text, we see the pleasures of spiritual blessings. The book of Ephesians and, and several other places in the Pauline epistles but it is mainly focused on getting believers to get their heads out of the earthly realm and into the heavenly realm. Now, it does not mean that we are to live like some kind of, of you know, uh, modest, uh, you know, uh, monk that we're to take a vow of silence. That'd help a lot of us, amen. But that's not what he's advocating. He's not saying we need to sell everything that we've got and live in a, in a monastery somewhere and sit around and hum boring music. That's not what he means when he's talking about being heavenly minded. But rather he's saying we ought to live our life in light of all that God has done for us, and all that God has made available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He, in speaking to Jewish believers in particular, he tries to adjust their perspective off the temporal and onto the eternal. But not just for Jewish believers, Gentile likewise, for all of us, we spend much too, too, much, too much time focused on this world and this life. Listen, I know you got to work a job, you have responsibilities, you got a yard to mow, you got a garage to clean out, you've got kids to whip. I'm, look, I get it, right? I understand it. But I'm saying we should not let our life become so occupied with those mundane responsibilities that it crowds out the realities of what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we get our focus entirely earthly in realm, 
It won't be long before we'll be discouraged. Because let me tell you something. The earth is a dismal place. The world's philosophy is look around and you'll find out it's not that bad. I'm not finding that to be the case. I'm finding the more I look around, the more discouraged I get. But I find the more I look up, the more encouraged I get. And so we need to be reminded that those pleasures forevermore are available to us. The spiritual strength that we need, the hope that we need, the faith that we need, the, the fellowship that we need. All those things are available to us. But only in as much as we'll enter into the holiest and enjoy fellowship with Him. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. We far too often allow the world to decide who and what we are. We think we're going to win by playing their game on their field by their rules. And we are over and over again disappointed and disabused of that notion. When are we going to start to understand? And I'm not talking about being in isolations. I'm not talking about being strange for the sake of being strange. But I'm talking about embracing this thing of being strangers and pilgrims. And instead saying, I want my life to be a living testimony as salt and life for what God has done for me. There are some things we need preserved in our life. There might be some things that you've lost lately. You might have lost some joy. You might have lost a little bit of heart and compassion, felt that cynical spirit creeping in. You might have lost some hope and grown discouraged at the things that are around you. But i got news for you. All that and more is available to you if you'll just come and, and meet the Lord at this altar. Bear your heart to Him and let Him have His will in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.